2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is um, quite a long reading right through until chapter 6, verse 13. So um, please follow along. (coughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put longing to put on our heavily dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please, to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether evil or good. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter six, verse one. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says... In a favourable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, (coughs) beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own afflictions. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, please again um, turn to 2 Corinthians and please have the, you'll find it helpful, I think, to have the handout in front of you just to help you stay with the argument. What we're really doing in these two sessions in particular is just trying to to trace the line of the argument through. It's a sustained sustained straight line argument in chapters 2 to 7. And all the way through, he is contrasting uh, his gospel ministry with the uh, pattern of ministry that the Corinthians are in danger of being enticed into uh, back in Corinth. Uh, Our last uh, session was titled, True Gospel Ministry Looks Rubbish But Is Really Brill. This one is called, True Gospel Ministry Looks Rubbish But Is Really Brill (laughs) 2. 
okay? Because it's just part of the same argument, really. And that's the big point, I think. Okay, now let me just, uh, let's just get us up to speed again after coffee. He's been talking about uh, a death-shaped ministry that brings life with it. That's what the new covenant ministry is like, he says. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11. We who live are always being handed over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see what he's doing in verse 12? He's saying, yes, it is right. Our critics are right when they say his life looks rubbish. Death is at work in us, he says. But that brings life to the Corinthians. It's because... Paul embraced that pattern of ministry that the Corinthians have the life they have. The old covenant ministry looked glorious but brought condemnation. The new covenant ministry looks grim but brings life. And that overflows, of course, from the Lord Jesus himself, uh, his ministry, a death-shaped ministry which brings life to the world. And that is where Paul's hope lies, not in glory now, but in resurrection in the end, verses 14 and 15. Now, what Paul does uh, in this next bit is he carries on to talk about the contrast between, between the present, not very glorious looking, and the future, very glorious indeed. And that's where we join uh, uh, the argument again, true ministry, the present and the future. Let me read 4.16. So we do not lose heart, brackets, though there are many reasons that we might close brackets. <laughs> though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary <laughs> affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you notice the running contrast all the way through these few verses? Outer decay, inner renewal, affliction, glory, light and momentary weighty and eternal, seen, unseen, transient, eternal. This is a massive perspective-shifting section. Ministry now is full of affliction, verse 17, decay, verse 16, wasting away. That's what you can see when you look at Paul's ministry. Wasting away and affliction. But in fact, in the end, he says, all of that will seem light, small, transient because it will lead to glory which is weighty and eternal. Look at how he talks about his present life. Verse 17. This light momentary affliction Tomorrow morning, we'll meet in chapter 11, an account of his present life. And it looks neither light nor momentary, <laughs> the affliction that he experiences. It's heavy and it goes on and on. But what he's saying here is that view that from eternity and it will just look vanishingly small in contrast to the huge, heavy, glorious thing that's coming the massive perspective shift going on here the ministry that leads to eternal glory unimaginably big uh, looks like death and decay now that's what you can see but says Paul I'm not looking at what I can see <laughs> verse 18 is really surprising we look not to the things that are seen I'm not looking at the things I can see with my eyes he says Rather, I'm looking at something quite different. I'm looking at eternal things. What you can see 
is not the basis for your hopefulness. Now, folks, this is very, very important uh, in ministry. Uh, isn't it the case that so often it's what you can see that makes you lose heart? It's what you can see that makes you think, oh, it's not worth doing any more of this. It's what you can see that makes you either feel good about stuff or discouraged about stuff. Paul says, I'm not looking at what I can see. I'm looking at unseen things. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples of how important this is in ministry. I used to work uh, in a big Bible study, small group Bible study program, and every year uh, we'd wait and see if anybody was going to come. We'd have all our leaders lined up, 90-odd leaders of small groups lined up. The first evening, you sit inside the door at five to seven thinking, will anybody come? It's that moment, you know, will anybody come? Or are we out of a job? You know, that kind of moment. Uh, the guy I work with uh, said to me every year on that occasion, at that moment, he said to me, this evening, you must remind me during the evening that it does not matter how many people come here. Now, that was very helpful because, you see, he recognizes his own inbuilt tendency to look at what's in front of his nose and either be, yes, they come, or, oh, no, they haven't come, they hate me, you know, that kind of thing. He recognizes in himself that tendency. He said, please help me not to think about what I can see. Let me give you another example. We used to do, uh, my wife and I used to do Sunday school um, uh, uh, in, our, in our church. And it was tremendously hard work doing Sunday school. We did it on a one and three rotor. Uh, every weekend we were teaching Sunday school on Sunday morning. It took the whole weekend up. You know, you spend the whole of Saturday trying to understand the Bible passage. And then when you've understood the Bible passage at about 6 p.m. on Saturday evening, you think to yourself, okay, how can I teach this very complicated concept to a group of six to ten-year-olds? And then at about 11 o'clock in the evening, when you've realized how you might do that, you desperately, there's that desperate, desperate hunt for the visual aid, which will help you to teach that very complicated passage to, you know, it, which usually involves going to Asda in the middle of the night and that kind of thing of buying, you know, very complicated. You get to the class the next day. Finally, you're ready. They all come rushing in. They look just the same as they did last week. You spend 45 minutes trying to teach them as carefully as you can from the scriptures, the message of the scriptures in the age-appropriate way. Much of the time, it feels like crowd control. 45 minutes later, they rush off. They look exactly the same on the way out as they looked on the way in. You only have to do that for a few weeks to think to yourself, nothing is ever going to come of this. <laughs> They look the same every week. They come in looking the same as they did last week. They go out looking the same as they did the week before. At that point, you have to tell you, we have a big battle on. Will I be driven by what is seen or what is unseen? Will I keep teaching them the word of God, knowing that in the end that will lead to eternal glory? Because it sure doesn't look glorious now. It looks like riot control every Sunday. Do You see, whether we're driven by what we can see or driven by unseen realities is a massive issue in ministry. If your church looks like it's going well, everybody is encouraged. If it looks like the work is difficult and opposed and there's conflicts and disruptions and disagreements, people falling out with one another, you have a tendency to think, well, there's nothing of any value going on here. But of course that's not true. There is stuff of great value going on here. It's just that you can't see what it looks like now. You can't see the glory that it's leading to now. It's a very important principle. Looking not to what we can see, but what we can unsee. Because the things that are seen are transient. They won't look that way forever. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The contrast continues. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, 
we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, just a note, we, I could have mentioned this earlier, but mention it now. When Paul uses we in these chapters, he nearly always doesn't mean we Christians. He's nearly always meaning we, that is, me and the people who do ministry, who, who do ministry like me. And quite often it's contrasted with we and others, or we and you. Look, for example, at um, verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We, the ambassadors of Christ, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the we here is nearly always me and people doing ministry like me. Um, just worth bearing that in mind, one tends to generalize these comments as meaning every Christian in every age at every time, and it doesn't always mean that. Um, notice there are three images here, three ideas here used to um, contrast the present and the future. The first is uh, a building versus a tent, verses one and two. And the second is being clothed or clothed better versus two following and the third one is uh, being at home or being away verses six and seven and eight nine okay let's explore those contrasting images for a moment verses one and two we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Uh, two things, a tent, a transient structure, you put it up, you take it down, it appears, it disappears. A building, something much more permanent. The point that he's making here is that the present life is more like a tent than a building. Death will dismantle it in the end. But there is something more solid coming, a building. Look how he describes it, a building from God, verse 1, a house not made with hands. Why does he use that phrase, do you think, a house not made with hands? Well, maybe because he's having a sideways prod at uh, Moses and the law, which is what the guys in Corinth are trying to promote. What is the big symbol of Mosaic religion? The temple in Jerusalem, which, at the date of writing of this letter, is still very much alive and very much a busy center of religious activity. And it's from the church in Jerusalem that the anti-Paul ministry, seem, uh, counter-mission, seems to be coming. It's a powerful advert for the law of Moses, the temple back in Jerusalem. It looks solid. It looks enduring. But the building that Paul is looking for here, the house not made with hands, is a heavenly building, not an earthly one. So he may be saying, by the way, folks, the building I'm looking for, it's not that building. That building is the center of earthly activity in lots of ways, but that's not the building I'm talking about. Second image is, is about clothing. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly building. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Here the image switches from putting on a building to putting on clothes. While we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He pictures two ages with two sorts of clothing. Regular, this age, clothing, and 
bigger clothing, further clothing in the age to come. Uh, let me try and illustrate what I think he's getting at here. I wonder if you've ever been to a really big fancy event and wondered in advance if you would be appropriately dressed or underdressed. Ever been to one of those? We occasionally have those moments in our family life at home. Uh, are we going to get the clothing right? It's a big enough event to worry about that. When we, when we meet a situation like that, usually the bedroom is festooned in clothes. So huge, the wardrobe is all over the bed, you know? Oh, no, that went, no, 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 not that, not that, not that. And that's, that, that's just me. Never mind my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Paul pictures the age to come versus the new age as you, the age, the, the present age has its own clothes. And the age to come has bigger clothes, more clothes, uh, further clothing, as he puts it in verse 4. And I think the kind of thing he's doing here is saying, there is a huge event coming, a huge event coming, the resurrection. You approach that event completely inappropriately dressed. You still have sins and sufferings and death. You walk up to that doorway, which is death, to enter the resurrection age. You know that you're completely inappropriately dressed. You walk through the door and Boom, instantly, instantly, you've got the right clothes on for that fantastically glorious event. That's the kind of picture he's saying here in verse 4. We groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, we don't want to be naked, but what we're looking forward to is clothing for the future that swallows up the clothing of this present age. That's what the transformation in the last day will be like. Just like that, entirely, appropriately attired for the glorious occasion that's coming. The third image he uses is home and away. Verse 6, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We don't see the Lord now. We're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Whether we're home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what's due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Um, here in this body, while we're in this body, we are away from the Lord. It's very important to, not to lose that emphasis. Yes, in becoming a Christian, you come to know God in a new way. But you are very significantly away from the Lord. You do not see the Lord face to face. You do not hear his voice direct from heaven. You just don't. And so, says Paul, we walk by faith, not by sight. Our present experience is not a sight experience of the Lord. It's a trusting experience of the Lord. We trust what he said. We trust that the future will roll out all that's been promised. We do not see the Lord now. We see him only with the eyes of faith now. Now, my guess is that the alternative ministry promises something much better looking. Uh, the promise of a better relationship with the Lord now. Uh, something more impressive looking now. Better looking clothing now. A better looking lifestyle. A less difficult looking way of doing things. Uh, a best life now kind of ministry. Paul's is not a best life now ministry, is it? Not as he describes it here. It's a groaning, longing, looking forward burdened in the present age, having to be courageous, having to trust, 
not seeing things face to face. That's the language he uses of his Christian ministry now. It's very reassuring, isn't it? At least I find it very reassuring. <clears throat> He's groaning because he knows his life is not crowned with honor now. He wants to be clothed because his clothes he knows are inadequate now, and so on and so on. In other words, he does not do ministry based on what he can see now. He does it by faith, not by sight. These are all, of course, ministry verses in their context. Verse 10. What matters about his ministry now? Not what people think of him in this present age, but what the Lord thinks of his ministry in the end. You see, he's doing ministry now not because people will like him now or approve of him now. He's doing ministry because this is the right way to do things and the Lord who, who will assess his ministry in the end uh, is the one that he'll have to give account to. God is going to assess his ministry not on the basis of how it looks now, but on the basis of how, whether it was true and right and good. It's quite a different thing. Okay, folks, so you see he's, he's contrasting here two kinds of ministries, a ministry which focuses on this age and a ministry which focuses on the age to come. And he's saying my ministry focuses on the age to come and therefore it's uncomfortable now. That's why it's uncomfortable now, because it's looking towards the age to come. It's not trying to build everything good now. How does that work out then, Paul? Well, it works out in a pattern of ministry that has the whole world in view. This is a, an important new dimension to the argument. Let's try and get inside it. Uh, verse 11. Therefore, because we're doing it by faith and not sight, because we're doing it uh, to seek uh, the approval of the Lord Jesus on the last day. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. He wants them to boast in the right sort of way. We're trying to persuade people, says Paul. That's our job. This letter, it's not being written uh, to big us up. It's being written to try and persuade you. We're trying to persuade you just as we've tried to persuade everyone. And we do it with a right mind, he says. Verse 13. Uh, this is probably, I think, countering his opponents. I suspect that his opponents, on the one hand, accusing of, ac accuse him of trying to big himself up, and on the other hand, accuse him of not being spiritual enough, not having enough splendid spiritual experiences. He's always in his right mind. He's too... He's too cerebral, not spiritual enough. Too controlling and too cerebral. Paul says, I'm not interested in looking good. In fact, they are interested in looking good. Look at verse 12. Those who boast about outward appearance. You see, there are some people who are doing ministry by sight, by how things look now. That's what he says his opponents are doing. Now, I want you to be right with God. That's my big concern. If we are beside ourselves, if people think we're stupid, foolish, it's for God. If we are being persuasive and in our right mind and cerebral and making an argument, we're doing that for you. Our interest is God and you, not ourselves. So he wants them to embrace the right sort of boasting. We want you, verse 12, to boast about us. Not in the sense that, whoa, Paul, isn't he cool? But in the sense that, yeah, he told me the truth about God. He's set me on the right path in relation to God. Why does Paul want that? Well, he wants that because of the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. 
<coughs> excuse me, because we've concluded <coughs> that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, a little bit difficult to see immediately how this works in the argument, but let me draw your attention to the, the absolute statements, the all-encompassing statements. Verse 14, one has died for all. All have died. He died for all. All. Verse 16, no one. Verse 17, if anyone. Do you see? What Christ has done affects the whole world, every single person without exception. What he's arguing here is that the pattern of love that the Lord Jesus has demonstrated must lead to his ministers being concerned for all people. And that's a big issue in this letter. Let me try and unpack that a little bit. Uh, verse 14 is easily read rather emotionally, for the love of Christ controls us. In other words, we're so emotionally motivated by the love of Christ that we do what we do. I think that's probably not quite, I'm sure Paul is emotionally driven by the love of Christ, but I don't think that's the argument that's being made here. The argument that's being made here is that the love of Christ shapes what we do. How does it shape what we do? Well, it shapes what we do because we have concluded that one has died for all. And therefore, verse 16, we regard no one in a worldly way. Because we know that the scope of Jesus' loving activity in the world is the whole world. That means we don't think about anyone in a worldly way. His ministry is for the world. Our ministry is for the world. We're not narrow in our focus, he says. We've got the whole world in view. Why did Christ die? So that all could be under new ownership. So that all could be recreated, verse 17. Now, why does Paul mention this? Why does he mention this here? Well, I think it's for this reason. It explains his pattern of ministry in relation to the Corinthians. You see, you might easily ask the question, if you were a Corinthian, why is Paul over there in Ephesus rather than back here with us? Why, rather than visiting from Ephesus, does he write these strong letters to try and correct us? Why doesn't he come? Why, when he comes, does he come and be cross? <laughs> Why doesn't he spend time with us? There are other people here who are very interested in spending time with us. Why is he not like them? And I imagine that the guys back in Corinth, the false apostles, come on in folks, it's nice to see you. That's all right. I'm sorry, we won't recap just yet, okay? <laughs> sorry, that's all right. No, it's fine, no, come on in, come on in. Let me, just, let me just get you back in that one. You might easily think as a Corinthian, why is he over there if he really loves us? And you can imagine the false apostles answering that question in this sort of way. Oh, he's over there because he doesn't really love you. And he's not really concerned for you. And he's not really that interested. All he wants is for you to love him. You see the power of that argument? There's a distant person and relationships with him are slightly awkward. And there are people closer at hand whispering in the ear. What is Paul saying here? The reason I'm over there is not that I don't love you. It's because you're not the only people in the world. And the Lord Jesus died for the world. There are other people apart from you. 
Christ's death covers everybody, looks towards everybody. The gospel ministry looks towards everybody all the time. And that's why I'm not with you. Because there are other things to do, not just you. It doesn't mean I don't love you. Of course I love you. But there are bigger horizons than merely you. Now, folks, this is incredibly important, something the Corinthians very, very much need to embrace. In both of these letters, there is a sense in the Corinthian letters that the Corinthians feel very superior, superior to other Christians in other places. They think of themselves as being special. That's especially prominent in 1 Corinthians. They thought themselves gifted, superior, spiritual, brilliant speakers, brilliantly spiritual. They're upset because Paul has put off visiting. Why isn't he coming to us? We are splendid sorts of people. Why wouldn't he not want to be associated with us? And notice the other thing that they're doing, which has forgotten the rest of the world. They've stopped collecting money for the collection for the Judean churches, which, as we discussed briefly yesterday, is one big part of Paul's gospel strategy at the moment. You see, the Corinthians' horizons are very narrow. Very narrow indeed. They go about as far as the outskirts of Corinth. And if anybody's paying attention to stuff within the outskirts of Corinth, the Corinthians are up for that. But stretch their horizons further afield, and they're not nearly so keen. Paul is saying here, no, it's not because I don't love you that I'm not here. It's because God has shown huge love in Christ for the world. He's got a much bigger agenda. Now, folks, one can easily see how that kind of thing, that kind of attitude is reproduced in many different Christian situations. It's very, very easy for churches to become centered on themselves and their own immediate concerns, not to look beyond their boundaries, not to look at the communities they're in, very easy, isn't it, for a church uh, to think, well, we've got lots going on here. We're so much work doing, it's so much work to do just dealing with the people who are inside the building and forget that they're a tiny proportion uh, of the population in the immediate vicinity. And it's very easy for churches in countries to just think about themselves and not about the world further afield and the needs of the world further afield. One of the great, uh, one of the great obvious areas in this is, uh, and I hate, to, I'm not going to get political, but we've got this upcoming, Euro upcoming European uh, referendum thing. Will we be in? Will we be out? Western Europe is one of the neediest parts of the whole world in terms of the gospel. And at the moment, we can walk in totally freely and live and work there as gospel people. Think about the gospel when you vote about the referendum. Think about the fact that we don't have boundaries to cross we can just go there it's very easy isn't it to become nationalistic as christians but the apostle paul is internationalistic when he thinks about the world now folks i'm not trying to persuade you to work either way to vote either way just to think about it there are other issues apart from our national integrity and our personal finance the apostle is concerned for the whole world, not merely Corinth. The Corinthians are concerned for Corinth and not the whole world. They think they're the center of the universe. Somebody else, somebody, was he, somebody already this weekend told me that the place they come from is the center of the universe. I can't remember which particular small town in Northern Ireland that was. Um, but it's like that, isn't it? We think where we come from is the center of the universe. I've got a colleague who worked for a long time in a school in Zambia. He thinks that's the center of the universe, and so on and so on. We always think our bit is the center of the universe. But of course, that's not the case, is that the Lord Jesus is Lord of everyone and everything all the time. Everything is important to him. So, folks... Uh, that's the scope of true ministry. It's the whole world that's in view. And what is the appeal of true ministry, therefore? Well, we find it in 518 uh, following. All this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What is the appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I've listened to you, in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Uh, do you see the logic? If the scope of the ministry of the Lord Jesus was the whole world, and in him God has reconciled the world to himself, he has entrusted to the apostles and others the ministry of reconciliation, which by definition must be a ministry for the whole world. So says Paul, my ministry is a whole world ministry. And the appeal of my ministry is just the same wherever I am. The appeal of the ministry is be reconciled to God. That's what the Christian gospel is all about. Urging people to be reconciled to God while there is still time to be reconciled to God. Uh, I think it picks up on Old Testament language here. Um, There is a coming king and a coming kingdom. What do ambassadors do in the ancient world? What is the business of an ambassador in the ancient world? Anyone know? Well, what an ambassador does in the ancient world is a big king with a large army is on his way. The ambassador is sent to the people he's coming towards. What does the ambassador do? He says, a big king with a large army is just coming over the hill. Before he arrives, there is opportunity be to become his friend rather than entering into conflict with him. What are you going to do? You can be reconciled to him before he arrives. When he arrives, it'll be too late to be reconciled. You'll be fighting. That's what ambassadors do in the ancient world. They come before the conquering army saying, now's the time, it's coming, it's coming, now's the time, when you see it coming, it'll be too late. That is exactly the image Paul is using here. God has not counted the world's sins against them. He has opened the door for the world to become the righteousness of God in Christ. The ambassadors are sent out. There is opportunity to turn round. Now, turn round before it's too late. There's an urgency about that. That's what, that says Paul, that's what I'm doing. Notice what, he, what, is, what the sharp end of that is the Corinthians, for the Corinthians. We implore you, Corinthians, to be reconciled to God. Now there's a strong word. Because it implies that at the moment, what the Corinthians are doing is not behavior consistent with being reconciled to God. So this is the sharp end of this long argument. It's been a long argument contrasting two patterns of ministry. A pattern of ministry back in Corinth, which is very focused in, in Corinth and Corinthian concerns. And a pattern of ministry uh, which is for the whole world. A pattern of ministry in Corinth which is concerned about this age and how nice things look in this age and a pattern of ministry which looks rubbish but is really brill because it leads to glory in the future. That's what's been going on all the way through these chapters. And now we get to the pointy end of the argument. Corinthians, be reconciled to God, which in its context means do not go for that pattern of ministry, go for this pattern of ministry. It's a very sharp uh, practical application. 
The righteousness of God is a done deal and you can have it. Be reconciled to God, he says to the Corinthians. Now, what is left to do in this section? What is left to do before chapter 4, verse 7? Well, simply this. Paul says, I want you to see that the way we have acted towards you comes from that global concern and reflects the same concern for you. He's trying to tie those things up, I think. And so in verses 3 to 10 of chapter 6, he says, we're not putting obstacles in your way. In other words, all that interaction we've had with you and all the difficulty there's been and all the conflict there's been, it's not because we're trying to make life difficult for you. It's because we love you and we want you to be in, in the right place in the end. Now look at verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How do we commend ourselves as genuine servants of God? Well, in a string of very not very of extremely not commending looking things, verses 4 to 10, difficulties, they show that we're the genuine thing. We commend ourselves by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Not a very, you wouldn't put that lot on your CV while applying for a job, would you? How do you know that I'm good at my job? Well, all this stuff comes wherever I go. <laughs> you won't employ anybody like that to do any job, will you? You won't employ anybody like that to be your church pastor, will you? <laughs> if your church pastor put that in his CV, Everywhere I go, endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Would you employ a guy like that? But that's the genuine thing. You see, we want a guy who's much more successful at that, an agent of change, capable of managing a complex institution. I mean, all that, that, all that rubbish. <laughs> that's not what a pastor really needs. I mean, it's not that a pastor reads none of that, but that's not the big qualification. Uh, notice uh, there's another set of things, um, characteristics of conduct. How does he do what he does? Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience. I've been very patient with you. Kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech. We have spoken the truth to you, not like those other guys. Genuine love, not like that fake love. The power of God, not like that pseudo-power that's being demonstrated where you are. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That's how we've done it. And the third set of things is what we get when we do it. Through honour and dishonour, slander and praise. Treated as impostors, but we are true. Unknown yet known, people know us but don't know us. Dying yet behold we live, punished yet not curled, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. I suspect that those contrasts pick up on things that are being said of Paul, probably in Corinth by some. Oh, he's very dishonorable. Lots of slander about him. Is he an imposter? We're not sure. We don't really get what he's doing. Look at his life. He's just in trouble all the time. He looks like he's being punished. He's always miserable. <laughs> he doesn't have any clothes. He's poor. He has no money. He won't take our money. We, don't get, we can't get our head around him. Do you see? These are the kinds of phrases the opponents are almost certainly using of him. What commends us, says Paul, the difficulties that come our way, the way we do things, and the kind of responses we get. Do you see those contrasts at the end? Uh, that's the, the aroma of life and the stench of death. That's the contrast. Some people love him, some people hate him. That's how it works out. Look at the way we've... 
the life we've lived, the things we've done, the things we've received, that commends us as the genuine article. Now I take it that what has been going on in Corinth is a subversion of the Corinthians' affections, that the people who've just arrived have looked at Paul and said to the Corinthians, there's so much about him that doesn't look like the real thing. He's in it for the money, all sorts of things he's done wrong. He's making life difficult for you. Paul says, no, we're not making life difficult for you. <laughs> we're not putting obstacles in your way. Uh, incidentally, that is how false teaching so often works. It says to the Christian, poor you. How terrible the way you've been treated by your pastor or your elders. I would never have said that. Oh dear, oh dear, you, you really deserve better than that. You really do. And of course, we live, don't we, in a victim culture where it's very easy for every to, everyone to blame everything on everyone else. Nothing is my fault. It's all been done to me. And we live in a culture where entitlement to things is just a given. A sense of entitlement is very strong. And of course, that spills over into church and makes us exceptionally open to this kind of manipulation. Oh, poor you. I would never have said that. I would never have done it that way. Do they really love you, those people who tell you those strong words about needing to repent? I wouldn't have done that. That's how false teaching catches people. It moves up alongside them against the person who's trying to teach the truth and fuels all of those inward-looking, small perspectives, self-centered things, small horizon stuff. We're not putting obstacles in your way, says Paul. What we want you to do is make room in your hearts for us. Verse 11, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. We're not holding you back. But you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Look what he says, the same in 7.2. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I'm not trying to be nasty. Because I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Widen your hearts. We're not being nasty to you. You have shut down your affection for us. Why have you done that? Now notice, in the middle, between these two widen your hearts things, is a very jarring looking section. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the bit of the letter that the commentators struggle with most. What is it doing in the argument here? Various possibilities are put forward. Uh, the language of the temple of God and idols, verse 16, suggests to some that Paul has in mind the ongoing Corinthian dalliances with idolatry uh, and the temple, which are pr prominent in 1 Corinthians. If so, you've got to ask the question, well, why does Paul drop it in here? In the concluding bit of an argument about true ministry versus false ministry. Why does he drop it in here? And most of the commentators can't quite reconcile that. I'm not sure if this is right. I'm going to go slightly out on a limb here. 
But in its context, what do you think this might be saying? Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You're restricted in your own affections. Widen your hearts towards us. 7.2, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, corrupted no one, take advantage of no one. In the middle, do not be yoked with unbelievers. What do you think that might be saying in its context? Well, I think the most obvious reading for that is do not be associated with them. Those people who are influencing you against us. If that is what he's talking about, notice the strength of that. What is he calling them? Unbelievers. And separation from them is as urgent as the need Israel had in the ancient world to be separated from the idolatry that she was so often overcome by. Now, if that's how this works, and I personally, I can't see how it can work differently given the context it's in. All the way through, he's been contrasting one ministry with another, his ministry with theirs, a rubbish-looking ministry with a glorious-looking ministry, a ministry that'll take you to eternal glory versus a ministry that will not take you to eternal glory. And here, right at the peak of this section, I think he's saying, guys, you must not be bound together with them. It's really urgent. No good will come of it. In fact, disaster will come of it. If you want to be in my family, in God's family, verse 18, do not give your affection to them. They look like the real thing. They look like ministers of Christ. They masquerade as gospel workers, but you tie yourselves to them and disaster will fall. I think that's probably what this section is doing here. I think it's a, a brilliant, very powerful climax to this bit of the argument. Do not be separate. Do not join yourselves to them. You have nothing in common with them. Although they're trying to put their arm around you, and trying to draw you into fellowship with them against me, you have got nothing in common with them. It will be a disaster if you keep doing that. I suspect that's what's going on here. But, you know, take it away and chew it over and read the commentaries and see if they give you a better answer than that. I, it's, a it's a difficult section. It's one of the, this is the section which most of all makes people think this is a totally randomly put together letter. Because this bit seems kind of dropped into the argument. Uh, and I think that's a cancel of despair, personally, that it's a randomly put together argument. I think it's very carefully put together, and that this is probably just a very punchy conclusion to that argument. Okay. Let me step back from this. We've, <laughs> we've gone through a lot of material this morning, and it's, I, hope you, I hope you see that this is one line of argument all the way through, basically dealing with the same thing from all, loads of different directions. One basic argument, do not trust them, do not associate with them. They want your affections. They want to pull you away from us. Do <coughs> not go with them. I know they look good. I know they talk good. I know that I look rubbish. But... True gospel ministry looks rubbish, but is really brill. That's the argument. So don't go with that. Go with me. Let me step back and make a big, one big observation on this. It is often very hard on the ground to be clear about who is really acting in your best interests. It's often very hard because people often in churches want to be seen to be acting in the best interests of the congregation. Nobody ever walks into a church and says, 
writes, I'm a false teacher. Listen to what I'm going to say. It'll take you to hell. You know, you're, you're an loser there, aren't you? Nobody is ever going to listen to you. What do you do? You use all the Christian language. And what do you do? You just make it look that bit more attractive than the regular Christian ministry. Subtly more attractive than the regular Christian ministry that you see. And of course, we're suckers for that kind of thing, aren't we? Because we long, we long to be properly clothed. And we long for glory. And we long for sins to be taken away forever. And we long, that you long for the day when you never want to sin ever again. <laughs> and all you have to do to be deviated from Paul's pattern of gospel ministry is to be offered something which will just make it a little bit easier to have victory over sin in this age. Or a little bit more glorious to belong to church or any of those kinds of things. It is often very hard to see who's acting in your best interests. I wonder if you, uh, anybody here <coughs> will admit to watching daytime TV. Um, my limited experience of daytime TV is that it's full of adverts of a very particular sort. Uh, people wanting to lend you money at extortionate rates of interest and people uh, offering you legal services for misfortunes which have come your way. What you need, has something happened to you? What you need is injury lawyers for you. Whichever, if ever, if ever there was a misnomer, that's it. It would be much better to advertise that as injury lawyers for injury lawyers. Why do they chase people who've had accidents? Because they want their money. Why do they have so much money to waste on national advertising campaigns? Because they get your money. How do they do that? They, they try to convince you that they're on your side. They're injury lawyers for you, not injury lawyers for injury lawyers. Folks, the same kind of thing spills over into churches and into gospel ministers. It's very easy to say that I'm a gospel minister for you when in fact I'm a gospel minister who wants stuff from you. Your honor, your attention, your time, your energy, your money, your body. Christian ministers are in a position to exploit people grotesquely if they want to. I was talking to a friend from an African country who said that in his country, it is much more lucrative to be a pastor than a senior politician. It puts you in a position of influence over people where you can exploit them to your heart's content, especially if you're subtle about it. And that is true right across the board. There are loads of people in Christian ministry who would be much better on the stage than in Christian ministry. The kinds of things that the ministry gives to them are things that they get in much better measure in the acting profession. The honor of people, the accolades of people. That's exactly what's going on in this letter. There are people who want the Corinthians for themselves. And Paul wants the Corinthians, but he doesn't want them for himself. He wants them to be reconciled to God. He wants them to have eternal glory. Therefore, he's willing to do stuff which they don't like to put them straight. That's basically the argument of this central part, I think. Uh, please don't hesitate to ask any questions about the detail. We've skimmed over it very quickly. Uh, but uh, for the moment, let's uh, pray and ask for God's help. this word Christian therefore if anyone is in Christ new creation the old has passed away of course it doesn't look like that does it but the new has come all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that though the true gospel ministry looks rubbish in so many ways, it is in fact truly magnificent. Leading people like us with lives like ours to greater clothing, perfect glory, an eternal weight of glory which massively outweighs the difficulties of the present age. We pray that you would help us not to seek glory in this age. We confess to you how much we long for the age to come. We find it so frustrating and disappointing that we still struggle desperately with our sinfulness. We, start, we find it so difficult that the world is often so hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to cope with our own aging and ill health and decay and death and that of others, our families and friends. All the sadnesses that belong to this present age, we long for something better. And we pray that you'd help us to keep believing that the route to glory to come is a cross-shaped ministry in the present age. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his massive concern for the Corinthians and for the world. We recognize that we live in an incredibly self-centered age in which entitlement and victimhood are very prominent. We pray that you would deliver us from those things and our churches from those things. Have mercy on us, we pray. Keep us looking at things unseen and being driven by what we know to be true rather than what we can see in front of our eyes. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.